Welcome to Truth in Focus. I'm Gordon Teeson, along with my co-host, Josh Cumston. In the studio today, we have J.J. Springer. He's the youth pastor at the Heartland E. Free Church in Central City. Welcome to the program today, J.J. Thanks, Gordon. It's great to be here. Now, this morning you spoke to our students in chapel here at Nebraska Christian Schools. We appreciate that. But before we listen to your message, I'd like to give our listeners a little background on what you're doing at Heartland. You're the youth pastor. You work with youth. What are, what are some of the exciting things that are happening at the church with the youth program? We've got a lot of neat things going on. We have a, a regular youth program Sundays and Wednesdays, and we really try to keep it focused on Scripture. We, we sit down, we study the Scripture, and see how it, getting to know God through Scripture can transform our lives, uh, help us deal with the junk that kids are facing today, the challenges, the peer pressure, the different temptations they face. How can they, through Scripture and, and getting to know who God is, walk with Him through those challenges? We've got some neat things, neat events coming up. We're taking some kids to the Dare to Share conference Next month, we're encouraging kids to, to be involved in the No Compromise Weekend. And then a group of our high schoolers are actually taking a missions trip to Berkeley, California in May. We try to place a, a worldview and apologetics emphasis on, on what we do in our youth ministry, and we found that one of the most effective ways to do that is to take kids where they can, can get to know people of, of differing worldviews and, and reach out to them, share the gospel with them, and also get to understand their own faith better and understand their own beliefs better by, by encountering people who believe differently and, and ask them some of the toughest questions they're going to face. And we found that it, it helps the kids develop a heart for lost people and also builds up their confidence in the, the truth of Scripture and the God's trustworthiness as, as they see that, that the Christian worldview really does make sense and does give an accounting for, for reality and for the things that, that we deal with. J.J., I know one of the things that you wanted to do was to help the kids discover who God is and what are some of the traits of God, and you went to Philippians today for this morning's message to our students. What led you there, and, and why that topic this morning? I think one of the biggest challenges that our, our young people face today here in this country or in this culture is is this idea that you are the master of your own destiny. You're in control. We We tell kids, you know, you can do and be anything you want to be in life and and we we kind of give them keys to the car so to speak and when we look at who Jesus is we see somebody who didn't didn't claim the rights that that he legitimately has but he laid them down when he came came to Bethlehem 2000 years ago he came to suffer and to die for us the reality is God did not have to do that for us and so when we when we get a look at the kind of love that that entails what it means to come and, and live in our place and die in our place, it it has a transformative effect on us as we see that God genuinely is a servant. He's not out for himself like most many of us are. He he is out to serve others. And so when we see in Scripture a, a description of that, it, it can be really powerful and help transform how we how we think and how we live, whether you're old like me or whether you're in high school or middle school, the idea that, that we're here to serve it's, it's part of who God is, is a, a powerful thing. With that, let's join JJ with today's message. We're going to start out this morning with a little quiz. I do have prizes for you guys. So I think these questions will get progressively harder. I've got three questions for you, all right? First one, I hope, is very easy. So I'm going to let, limit this one to seventh and eighth graders, okay? Who is George Washington? 
Okay, very good. The first president of the United States. This one, this one will be, I think some of you will know this one, okay? Who is Johnny Manziel? Okay, you won the Heisman Trophy this year. Very good, sir. Okay. All right, last question. Who is Clyde Tombaugh? Does anybody know who Clyde Tombaugh is? This doesn't say much about the quality of an NC education if you guys don't know who Clyde Tombaugh is. Uh, two things. He is my wife's father's cousin, which is no big deal. But he is also the astronomer who back in the 20s or 30s or something discovered Pluto, which may or may not be a planet. That's what he is known for. If this was a group of astronomers, somebody would have, have got that. So no prize, no prize for that. So why am I asking you that? I'm asking you that because in our culture, primarily where people get their significance, what people are known for is what they've accomplished, okay? All three of those questions, the, the answer of what those people were most well-known for is some accomplishment they've had. But the reality is that that is not what is most significant about us. The most significant thing about a person, according to Scripture, is who they believe in their heart, deep down, God really is, okay? Not what you've accomplished, not your grades, not your sports accomplishments, not how much money you have, not who your parents are. Not even what you say you believe about God, but deep down what you genuinely believe God is, or who you believe God is. Uh, A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, wrote this. This is the opening of chapter one. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. So the most, the most important question we could ever ask ourselves is what is God truly like? And God has given us a lot of information about himself. Um, there's this idea of general revelation. We can, even without scripture, we can look around and we can figure out certain things about God. We can look at the design of the human body or the incredible complexity we see in nature. We can intuitively know that God is incredibly creative. We can look at the fact that this world exists, that it had to be created from nothing and know that he's incredibly powerful. And we can look at our own hearts, we can look at our own consciences, and we, we know we do things we're not supposed to do. We all experience guilt. And we know from that deep down that God is holy. We can figure all those things out uh, just from our own experiences. But there's some things about God we can only know from revelation, from him having shown himself to us. And thankfully he did in the person of Jesus. And of course none of us have interacted directly with Jesus because we weren't around 2,000 years ago. But he's preserved true accounts of his life in, in his word. And so we can know what God is like 
from his word. And so I'm going to look at a passage this morning in Philippians that gives us a picture of what God is like that, that we would never know uh, just from nature, just from our experience. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 5 through 11 this morning. Take a second to find it. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Paul is writing to the, the church at Philippi. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And in this passage we see something about who God is that we would, would never ever be able to figure out on our own, and that's God's incredible humility. What we see in this passage is a description of, of God's humiliation in becoming a man and coming to this earth to live a perfect life in our place, to die in our place. Um, and Paul is saying we are to have the mind that Christ had in, in this level of, of humility. And a lot of times we misunderstand this concept of humility. We, we tend to think that the humble person is the one who's always walking around putting themselves down. Okay, oh, I'm so stupid. Oh, I'm so slow. I'm so this. I'm so that. that is, that's not true humility. True humility is always outward focus. Okay? When you meet a humble person, you're not going to notice them putting themselves down. You're going to notice them building others up and having eyes turned outward to God and to others. And, and I've had this experience where I've had a conversation with somebody and I'll walk away thinking, wow, that person really cared about me. That person really took an interest in me. They were concerned about me. That's true humility. It's not, wow, that person really hates themselves. Or that person really has a low view of themselves. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And in Christ, we have the ultimate example of this in this passage. Um, in verse, uh, verse 6, says, who though he was in the form of God, not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. So we see very clearly who Jesus is. He, he truly is God. He has all the rights that God has. And as Americans, we like to, and we're not all Americans in here, but, but we're all kind of from the free West. We like to demand our rights. I have a right to this, I have a right to that. The only one who truly has rights is God, the right to be worshipped, the right to be obeyed. And we see in Christ how God set aside that right. He had no obligation to do what he did. He had no obligation to become a man. And yet it says that he did. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. That, didn't mean he, that, that doesn't mean he stopped being God. It means he took on a human nature. It's really hard for us to understand that what a significant thing that is, because we're all humans in here. That's all we can imagine, so we don't know what it must have been like for someone who's not human to become human, to take on that level of, of humility. But when we look at the kind of humility he took on, it, 
it blows me away. It should blow us away. It says he took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. In other words, not just any human. He didn't come and live the life of Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or whoever, the, a life of, of privilege and pleasure. He took the lowest form. He took the form of a human who has absolutely no rights whatsoever. He gave up everything to come and live uh, and do this on our behalf. Um, and that's so significant because it had to be that way <clears throat> for us to be restored to God. Um, he took the lowest place. Not only did he become obedient, says he became obedient to the point of death. All right, death is a scary thing. Um, I don't know if you've had this kind of conversation before, but I've, I've heard people talk. How do you want to die? What do people always? If you've heard these conversations, what do people always say? How do you want to die? People always say, I want a natural death. Okay. People, people often say, I want to die in my sleep. In other words, I don't want to see it coming. I don't want to suffer. I want to die the easiest, most fear-free possible death I can die. Jesus didn't embrace that kind of life or death. It says he embraced a cross kind of death. He came knowing he's going to live his entire life going to the cross, dying the most painful, excruciating death possible. He did that on our behalf. Um, to illustrate that, uh, because that's, that's something that we cannot even grasp, the kind of humiliation that that requires. But there's a, there's a picture of that kind of death in this book. This is called Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl. And in this book we see, um, I need to find the right page here. We see the author and his son uh, looking at some ants. They're in the backyard and they're getting ready to mow the lawn and they, they move some rocks so they can mow the lawn. And they're, they're studying what these ants are doing. And he's talking with the son and thinking about, okay, what, what must it be like to be an ant? And what they're seeing, one of the things they're seeing is, is these ants are killing earwigs. I don't know that much about that. Ask your biology teacher what exactly that means. But he's imagining the civilization, imagining that they're taking the life of these earwigs in order to appease him because they think he might be, he might be God. So that's kind of the setup for what, what I'm about to read. It says this, My son and I still watch the ants, and I'm unrepentant. I would not torture things for no reason. I would not throw an ant Manhattan into the lilacs without cause. I needed to mow my lawn. Do the ants name these disasters? Are anteaters their tornadoes? Am I a tropical storm or hurricane? Did their weathermen predict me? Did they still have their jobs? These ants are functioning with an older system. As we watch, soldiers are dragging struggling earwigs into the center of the mound. Earwigs rounded up from who knows where. Like every human civilization in the midst of disaster, they need scapegoats. Who tore down the sky, the mob yells? Who opened our world into outer space? Who punched this hole in the ozone and brought the sizzling heat to our young? I can't tell which answer the priests. I don't think the tiniest of BBC cameras could show me that, but I still hunch and watch, searching minute insect faces for some glimmer of authority. If I could speak antish, I know what I would be hearing. Lots of screaming, yes. But there also must be some codgery old tunnel dweller with stiff joints, rolling his eyes, and rattling antenna, clicking mandibles. The cry, the cry goes up quickly once the word has been given. It was the earwigs, 
their perverse, unant-like ways and vile butt pinchers have brought this upon us. The gods demand a sacrifice. The first earwig is decapitated. What are they doing, my son asked. They're killing earwigs, I answer. Why? Two more are dead with their backs arching, pinchers splayed wide and falling at the sky, asking the world, asking God why. Because they think it's their fault. For a moment, I'm tempted to bring the rock back. I want to hide this little incident back in the sun-warmed soil. But it dawns on me that the sacrifices might be for me. They might know the earwigs had nothing to do with the devastation of their city. They must know perfectly well that I was the one who did it. They think I want blood. Here, take the souls of the earwigs. Leave our young. Put back the sky. How many do you want? We'll keep killing until your wrath's appeased. I can't put the rock back. I can't lie to them like that. I won't stoop to fill the role of Zeus or the Aztecs, Quetzalcoatl. Kill as many as you find, I say out loud. No earwig is ever really innocent. There are more in the mulberry bush with fat, juice-filled backsides. And when you're done, move your civilization. I'll give you until tomorrow afternoon, and then I'm mowing the lawn. My son looks at me. They don't know our language. I stand up slowly and look around the overgrown yard. No, they don't, but they'll be gone by tomorrow. And then he goes on, and this is where we see the significance of, of what he's talking about. How much do I care for these ants? I think I care. I'll stop to watch their wars. I'll buy my children documentaries, insect tributes. I won't crush them when I can help it. But if given a chance, would I be willing to become one of them? Would I be willing for them to drag me to the place of execution, taunt me, mock me, ridicule the gift I offer? a gift entirely beyond their comprehension? Would I be willing for the earwig executed beside me to add his insults to those of the ants? Would I be willing to die? No, never. I have more self-regard than God does. I have less love for the characters beneath me. And when I read that, I thought, what a picture of what God has done for us. Would I ever in a million years become an ant to save a bunch of ants. And yet the gap between me and a bunch of ants is tiny compared to the gap between us and God. And yet God came and did that on our behalf. And the passage closes with a description of Christ's exaltation. Because he did this, he's exalted. Because he did this, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And so when we sing at the beginning of chapel, I just thought about how great it is that we get to sing to God and exalt Him for what He's done for us. And there's a reminder again at the front end of the passage, we are to have this mind, this mind of Christ, the heart of, of a servant. And so as we go forward, it's just a wonderful reminder that we are to think like Christ thought. We are to think as servants. Um, you guys are all at a place of making big decisions. If you're in middle school, you're figuring out what your high school career is going to be like. If you're a senior, you're figuring out what comes next. And we all have a framework for making these decisions. Maybe your framework is what's going to get me the most money or what's going to get me the most happiness. Okay? But all those things are going to leave us empty. Our framework has to be, how can I be a servant like Christ was? That's the mindset that we are we are called to have, because that's the mindset that actually exalts Christ. I uh, appreciate you listening. Uh, let's close in prayer. Lord, it's because of what Jesus has done that we're able to praise you, and we're able to see what 
what you are like. We, we thank you that he humiliated himself, that he came, lived the perfect life in our place, and died in our place, uh, that we might have hope, that we might be restored to you, uh, that we might be free to live a life of love and, and service and worship. Uh, I just pray for our MC right now. Pray for the staff and the students here and, and each of the families and the churches. Uh, these would each be places where, where Jesus is exalted and where servanthood would be the norm, uh, where we would turn our eyes outward to you, outward to others, uh, and just live joyful lives of, of service uh, because Jesus did it first in, in a way that we could not. So we praise you for him. I pray for each one here today as they go to class, as they do sports and extracurriculars, uh, that their hearts would be uh, toward you uh, with the desire to honor you in, in all that they do and think and say. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Truth and Focus and J.J. Springer, who's the youth pastor at Heartland Evangelical Free Church in Central City.